everyone. It is uh, good to see you. My name is Jeff. Um, I get to be a, a pastor here at Heart of Life, and we're just saying today we are grateful that you would choose to join us in these moments together. Um, I also want, just again today, to say uh, just a special hello to our friends in Taiwan who are actually joining us in this series by video. And uh, we're just truly honored that uh, you all would choose to, to, to be a part of this study with us. This is a study of some letters written by Jesus. And as you might imagine from the title, it was seven letters to seven churches. Thus the title seven. That, that's, that's where that came from. What we learn from these letters is a whole lot more about who Jesus is, and what we learn from these letters are a lot more of who he has called us to be. For example, one of the things we learned last week is when, when Jesus talks to these churches, sometimes he refers to them as lamps. A lampstand might be the way that your Bible records it. And so it's this image for us of Jesus saying, the church is supposed to be a light. That's the way it's supposed to work. In, in all of the cities, on all the towns in which we are located, we are supposed to be light. Our lives are supposed to point people to Jesus who is the light of life. These letters help us do that. Now, real quick, I did this last week, and there were a lot of people who said, man, that really helped me kind of just to, to get my mind around it. I'm going to show you once more this morning um, just a quick map. Um, these are the seven churches. These are the seven churches. And then if you connect the dots, um, which, like, remember growing up, connect the dots? If you connect the dots, it's a horseshoe. And the reason it makes such a pattern is it's actually the ancient Roman mail route. Well, this time, it's Jesus who's sending the letters. And so every week, what we're doing is we're going to the mailbox, because these were actual letters written to actual churches, and every week, we get the next letter that we're going to read. Now, just real quick, anybody remember, what, what was the church last week? Ephesus. That's right. Ephesus was the church. And what we found out last week is the Ephesus church, they, they believed the right things, all right? They, they knew what to believe about God. They were tough. They would endure when they would serve as, as they were doing good things. But Jesus sort of sits down across the table from them, and the question he's got for the church at Ephesus is, where have you been? And they're like, what do you mean, where have we been? We've been in church. And it's this beautiful picture what a beautiful place to begin to remind us that although Christianity involves knowing right things about Jesus, and it involves doing good things, ultimately, Christianity is about a relationship with the God who loves us. What a beautiful place to begin. The church at Ephesus had forgot that. They missed the point, and so Jesus wrote them a letter. And he's just saying, this is what it's all about. Now, before I read this letter, when it comes to missing the point, just to let you know, last week, at the end of the day, all right, we, we do three services on Sunday. At the very end of the day, one of our men came to me and said, Jeff, 
I'd like to know how that rose turns out when it thaws. I said, huh? He said, I want to know, you know, we had a rose and a block of ice last week to represent a love that grows cold. He goes, I want to know what that rose looks like when it thaws out. I said, okay. He goes, because if it looks good, I mean, we could just like freeze those roses like fish and we could pull them out when we need one. I said, you mean like you mess up, you could just come home, pop one in the microwave, and there's a rose for your wife. He said, yes, that's what I'm talking about. We need Jesus. That's what we need. We need Jesus. Here's the letter. Week two, letter two, Revelation chapter two, verse eight is where it begins. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Right. What a funny name. Now, angel, we learned, is, it's the word messenger, probably refers to the pastor, all right, the, the one who is, who, is, who is delivering the message there. And, and the church is called Smyrna. It's just a funny name. Kind of makes you want to say it, right? Everybody say Smyrna. You got to you kind of Smyrna. That's the way I like to say it, Smyrna. It is modern day Izmir in Turkey. It's the, the modern day city is Izmir in Turkey. It's about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Think about the horseshoe. We've moved north about 40 miles. Now, quick picture that I want to show you. This is kind of just an aerial view of Izmir. All right, this is a view. If you look today, today, this is what you would see. You can tell um, these are they're ruins. All right, so you can tell there's just rocks kind of laying. It's, it's a part where, as the, you know, the, the old city, what it, what it would have looked like. And, and you look at something like that and you go, well, man, what a sad looking city. Right, just a city full of ruins. But no, because when you begin to expand your view here and you begin to get a bigger picture, you suddenly go, whoa, this is a pretty good sized city. In fact, it's gigantic. There are skyscrapers that go all the way to the coast. And as you keep going out, you realize this is a crazy influential city. This thing is mammoth. You start to, you can tell how it's connected to the Aegean Sea. You can tell how the port would be protected. I mean, it was just an incredibly influential, powerful place. Back in the day, Izmir was known for, or uh, Smyrna was known for uh, science, for medicine, for wine, for architecture, for literature, for the arts. Um, the guy who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, anybody know who that was? Homer, that's right, not the Simpson, but, but the, the Greek poet one, all right? That Homer is actually from Smyrna, he's from this this city. It says in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Now who's writing this letter? Jesus is. And so he, he says, he, I'm, the, I'm the one, I'm the first and the last, the one who, who died and came to life again. We know, we're talking about the Jesus who was crucified but the Jesus whom death could not hold, he is resurrected. 
He he is the the, the first and the last. He's the one who always has been, the one who always will be. He is the creator of everything. He is the author of all of history. But I think there's even another significant reason that Jesus uses this phrase when he says, the one who died and came back to life. Because what we know from history is that the city of Smyrna was destroyed in 600 B.C., But by about 290 B.C., they rebuilt the city. And Smyrna became the city that the phrase, a phrase was attached to the city that died and came back to life. And so I think when Jesus connects this phrase, he is certainly referring to himself. But there also is this phrasing where you get the picture. Jesus is saying, hey, I know who you are and I know where you've been. And if anybody is qualified to talk to you, it's me. The one who died and came back to life. And this is what he says to them. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we dig into the first word, then we will understand the second word. You see, the word affliction actually means crushed. It means pressed. And the word began by being attached to, in this day, in in the day in which this would be written, it was the picture of pressing olives. They would press the olives between two plates, and the olive oil would run out. That is the picture, all right? Now, in our day, I'm not into pressing olive oil. You can find that. But today, I brought the juicer with me, all right? So you, you, you take like an orange, put the orange here, and then you just press. You get the picture. The, the orange juice runs into the cup. You're like, well, how come you didn't do that today? Well, here's why I didn't do that today. I thought about it. I'm like, I'm going to press an orange. And the more I thought about that, it's like, I'm going to press an orange. I'm going to stand up here and drink sweet, refreshing orange juice, and you're going to watch me. And it sounded like a good idea at the beginning until you become bitter. It's like, how come? How how come we don't get fresh, squeezed orange juice? And so the more I thought about it, like, I'm not going to do that to him because I'm a nice guy. So I just, brought, I just brought the juicer, you get the picture, you, you, put, you put the orange in and you just press, the juice comes out. That's what the word means, affliction. It means to crush, it means to be pressed and eventually it became a metaphor for a person whose life was being crushed whose life was being pressed. In other words, Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna, I know you are being crushed. I know you are being pressed. What's he talking about? He's talking about persecution. These people, these Jesus followers, this church is being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. You say, well, why would that be? 
I mean, why, why would they be persecuted in that way? Well, the reason is because they refuse to worship Caesar, all right? They, they live in a, a territory um, where when Rome came into power, it was Smyrna that was the first city to build a temple to Roma, which, which is the goddess of Rome. And it was designed so that people could show up at, at a particular place and worship the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar. That, that was the point. And so each year, every citizen was required, go to the temple. They would take a drop, a pinch of incense. They would, they would put it into the fire on the altar, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. Everybody was required to do that. But the Christians in Smyrna would not do that. They would not do that. Because to them, Caesar was not Lord. Jesus is Lord. See, they knew there was only one God. There was only one ruler. His, his name was Jesus. And, and Caesar would, would, would try to rule through power and intimidation and fear. But they have come to know this Jesus who rules through love and humility and self-sacrifice. They would not bow to Caesar. And in Smyrna, to not bow to Caesar eventually was fatal. It was fatal. It would mean, often first, they would lose their job. What I mean is, the people of Smyrna would boycott their businesses if they were Christians. They would boycott, which means no income, which means eventually you start to lose things like a house. It meant they lost Roman protection. Because in Smyrna, it became legal to persecute Christians. They could just beat you if they wanted to. Eventually, they lost freedom. They would be kidnapped. They would be imprisoned. Eventually, they lost their lives. Many of them were executed because of their faith in Jesus. They became martyrs. Smyrna is actually the city, perhaps you've heard, there was a very famous pastor who, who was there in the second century. His name was Polycarp, which is just a cool name. But what happened to him is not cool because they hauled him off to the city stadium, which is where the Olympics would be held. They tied him to a pole, called the crowds to watch, and they burned Polycarp alive for his faith in Jesus. Now, he was tough. He was tough. His faith was strong. This is the guy who said, the fire that you're about to light is only going to last a few hours, but the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, they never go out. That's what he said right before they lit to the fire. They lit the fire. The Christians in Smyrna are being crushed. They are being pressed. They are losing everything, we would say, because of their faith in Jesus. Let's go back to verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Like, what? We'll come back to that one, all right? I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's like, what in the world does that mean? Well, here's the picture. Christianity has Jewish roots. Jesus was Jewish. John, the writer who's recording these letters, he, he's, he's a Jew. The early 
early Jesus movement is made up of many Jewish converts, but when Christianity began to distinguish itself from Judaism, there were some in the Jewish synagogue who saw Christianity as a cult. And if it's a cult, it needs to be stamped out. It needs to be cut out. It needs to be removed. And the way they did that was slander. And this group of people went after the character of the Christians. That's what slander is. It is character assassination. They start to, to lie and they spread rumors and it cost the Christians. Their, bo- their, their businesses would be boycotted. Some of the children would be kicked out of the schools. I mean, it, it was incredibly isolating. Anytime there was trouble or a riot, the first people they would blame would be the Christians. And what Jesus says is, you understand that's not a Jewish thing, that's a satanic thing. This is a demonic, motivated persecution against you. He's saying there's a bigger picture here. And so verse 10, do not, what? Be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now notice, notice the, next, the next line, do not be afraid because you will not suffer. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? That's how we like it to read, right? Do not be afraid because you won't suffer. That's what we want Jesus to tell us. Don't be afraid because, you, because this isn't going to hurt at all. No, what he says to them is, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, we struggle to comprehend even Jesus talking to us this way, honestly, in America, in Taiwan, we struggle. We struggle to comprehend. Because if, if we identify as a Christian, yes, we may be met with skepticism. Yes, there may be people who push back on us. There, there may even be people who would treat us unfairly. But the idea of losing everything being put in prison and even killed, that's just not how our radar works in terms of standing in our faith for Jesus. There is a organization um, that creates something every year called the World Watch List, right? The World Watch List. And what it is, is it is the 50 most difficult countries in the world in order to be a Christian. It is the 50 most dangerous countries in order to say that you are a follower of Jesus. And every year, it's updated. They give us 50 every year. There is an extreme persecution section. There is a high persecution section. And then there's like a, it's actually extreme, very high, and high. That's how the 50 are broken down. Today, we just gave you the extreme. There's 11 of them. These are the top 11 countries in the world that are most dangerous in terms of identifying as a follower of Jesus. Um, North Korea has been at the top for 16 straight years. 16 straight years. 
So all the talk that goes on in our news about North Korea, all, all the political stuff that goes on, I'm, I'm saying behind all that is the fact that for the last 16 years, the place where people have been persecuted most severely, the place that it is most dangerous to identify with being a Jesus follower is North Korea. North Korea. Eight out of the top ten, the, the persecution is fueled from Islamic oppression. Eight out of the top ten. Islamic oppression is the reason. 215 million Christians, it is estimated, are represented in the top 50 countries where it is most dangerous. 215 million Christians. There is a price tag for following Jesus in these places that is extremely high. It was the Apostle Peter who said it this way, 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's what we know. He's like, be alert, pay attention, because you got an enemy. His job is to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he does. Verse 9, resist him standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We are reminded today that we have a family of believers around the world where right now, right now, many of them are being crushed. Many of them are feeling the press for simply saying, we love Jesus. Now, I want, I want to bring this down here. I, I want to bring this back to us. Because I don't want us to miss the fact that, that this word affliction, this word to press, this word to be crushed, it, it also includes something bigger than, than even persecution for your faith. It, it really can be this encompassing word of what it feels like when life is pressing in on you. I, I'm talking about the husband and wife who lay in bed at night, staring into the darkness because a child has not come home. And maybe it's because of rebellion. Maybe it's because of loss. But a husband and a wife stare into the darkness and their heart is crushed. They feel the press. I'm talking about people who feel the press sometimes in terms of the loss of a job, a career that you thought was going to go on and on and on and on, and it did not. And out of the the loss of a job, the, the money factor is getting tight. Maybe it's because you're caring for extended family. The resources are not what you, you planned for them to be. And in the middle of all that, man, the, the financial press 
crushing sometimes. Maybe it's medical. The crushing diagnosis, you are praying for healing, but the healing has not come yet. And you feel the press. Like, what do we do with that stuff? What what do we do with that? What, What do we do when we feel that pressure? What do we do when life crushes that way? I don't know about you, but when I'm feeling the pressure, when I'm feeling the crush, um, I, I have a way of, of uh, that's pretty much what I'm paying attention to. I mean, would you agree? It's like when you, when you feel it, it's like this is kind of what I'm looking at all day. And, and no matter where I'm going, this kind of tends to be what I, it's what I see. And there's a part of me that, that wants to put it down. Like, I, I want to I handle this right, I, I want to have a good perspective, and so I, I, try to, I, I try to put it down, you know what I'm saying? And, and I try to go about, you know, the other stuff that I need to do in my life, you know, what, whatever it is that I feel like I need to be busy with, what, whatever else needs to get done, but, but, but I immediately find myself coming right back, and I pick it up again. It's like, what do I do? Well, do you remember when I gave you the view of Smyrna and you saw the ruins and you saw the brokenness? And if, you, if that's all that you see, I mean, there, is a, there, there would be a sadness in your heart. It's this picture of, wow, what a, what a, sad, what a sad view of a city until you started to what? broaden the view. A little wider shot changed the perspective. Can we put that world watch list back up there? North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan. What happens what happens when I broaden, widen the view of what is crushing me until I can see a little bigger picture. What happens when I start to see my crushing in, in, in view of the fact that there are other people in this world who are also walking through a crushing of heart, a pressure of their heart. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying at this point, right? Because here's where we tend to go. We tend to go, well, that makes me feel great, right? Because all of a sudden, my pressure doesn't compare to their pressure, right? They're, they're living in a place where, where that's not the point. You, if that's where you go, you, you, you've missed the point. The point is not to broaden the picture so that you can see this and then walk away feeling guilty, go, I'm so silly. That, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is to go, the pressure is real. The crushing is real. But you are not alone in trying to stand in your faith in the middle of the pressure. That's the point. 
You are not alone. That's what the apostle Peter was saying when he says, you have this enemy and he is trying to mess you up. And not only does he want to crush you, he wants you to believe that you're the only one who's being crushed on the planet. But he's saying, don't be discouraged. You resist him. You stand firm in your faith because there's a family all over the world who is also standing firm in their faith. That helps me. That helps me. Somewhere in the world right now, all right, I know this is tough, but somewhere in the world, this world right now, there is a family who have gathered in some room, a dad, a mom, kids, they have gathered in a room. And right now they look at each other and someone says, you understand, if we follow Jesus, we will probably lose our lives. And they all look at each other and they say, we will stand. That helps me. That helps me. That helps me when when I'm feeling the crush. That helps me when there's pressure to to realize that that I am not alone in this. There is a family of believers across this globe, and they are standing firm in their faith. That helps me. That's what Peter said. If you could broaden the view, if you could widen the lens a little bit, get a bigger picture here, Jesus, help me. Which reminds me of something else was the prophet Isaiah who said even a long time before it happened, he said, he, verse chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. Who's Isaiah talking about? Jesus. This is what was going to happen. He was, what's the next word? Crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah said, do you understand? This this is what Jesus is going to do. You understand, this is how he's going to lay down his life. There, There is going to be a piercing, right? Nails driven through his hands and feet. That there is going to be a crushing for our iniquities. Jesus knows what it is to be crushed. Hebrews tells us that because he suffered in trials, he is able to help us in trials. But what I want to make sure we understand is that this is not just the fact that Jesus can relate to our crushing. It also says in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are, come on, help me, crushed in spirit. Whoa. He is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So, what if, what if the view gets even a little wider and it's not just that I see my pressure 
in the backdrop of a family of God who is standing firm in the faith. But what if this view gets wide enough that I begin to place my crushing and my pressure at a cross? What if the view widens even more and suddenly there is a cross. And, and remember who we're talking about here? Re- remember who we're talking about here? V- Revelation 2, and verse 8, it said, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Th- this, this changes the perspective. Th- this changes h- how I see the crushing. He is with me. It is, it is not just that there's a family of faith across the world who continues to trust, but it is together we, we are clinging to, to Jesus. He holds us. He is with us. He's saying to you, some of you this morning, it's like in the middle of your doctor visits, in the middle of your medical test, I am with you. I got you. Those who, you, you have lost count of the number of job interviews. You thought that would have been over a long time ago, but, but, but you, you just kind of, it's like this one gets declined and then this, this opportunity seems to slide by and, and, and you've been at this for a while and you feel the discouraged and he's saying, I, I got it. You talk about crushed. I, I know, I, I am with you. Those of you who, who struggle with a child and you have fought You have prayed, but you are not yet seeing the change of heart come about. And you feel the weight of the crushing, and it feels like I can't do this anymore. And he's saying, I'm with you. You who are grandparents, and you are raising grandchildren. It's like, this this isn't how you thought this would would work out. This is really not how you thought the retirement plan was going to play. But here you are. And suddenly there's this need and your grandchildren are now in your care and you are giving every bit of energy, every bit of effort, every bit of resource that you've got and you wonder, is it going to be enough? And he goes, I got it. Some of you are caring for for family. Maybe it's elderly parents. and, And there is a weight that goes with that. And, and you got children too. And so you got children on one side and you got parents on the and, and you feel the, the press that, that comes together. And a view that's wide enough that he says, I got it. I, I am with you. I know your afflictions and your poverty. This is what he says in verse 9. Yet you are what? rich. Like, I don't feel rich. I feel tired. I don't feel rich. I feel tired. And that's what he's not, he's not talking about material wealth. He's talking about spiritual wealth. And he's saying, even though the Christians in Smyrna are getting crushed, they are rich in faith. Can I just encourage you for a few moments that when you know Jesus, I mean, when you know him, he, you, have, you have turned to him in faith, and by his grace, he has forgiven you, and he has come to live with, 
within you. You you are his child. He is your savior, your life entrusted to him. Did you know that Philippians says, I didn't put any of these on the screen because I just want you to hear what I got to say. Philippians chapter four says, God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. That's good. How much stuff he got? God got anything to offer? According to his riches and glory. He's like, that's not where you line up. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 that we are recipients of the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's like, Jeff, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to say uh, unfathomable, much less what, what, what does it mean? What it means is you, you, you are going to search this out your whole life and you're never going to get to the bottom. You're never going to get to the bottom of how much this God loves you. But we can try, and we keep digging in. And so Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that our God is rich in mercy and in forgiveness, and that he willingly and he lavishly pours this out on us. It means that all that we have done, all that we will do, our God does not hold it against us because of the riches of his mercy and the riches of his forgiveness. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that is to come. In other words, God's Spirit, who lives within us, now. He moved in when you put your trust in Jesus. He is the tip of the iceberg. That's what you're experiencing now compared to what is going to be. And first Peter tells us it is an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It cannot fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. Your name is on it and nobody can ever take it away. In other words, even in the season of crushing, even in a season of pressure, even when there's a trial, even in the middle of the pain, and you don't know if you can take it anymore because it's pressing from both sides. You have this unfathomable and completely inexhaustible bank account known as the riches of Christ that ensures that your life and your faith are never going to go bankrupt no matter what you go through. In other words, with Jesus, you can be your best even when life is at its worst. You can be your best even when life is at its worst. That's why he says in verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I'm not convinced that like the 10 days is is. I do think that there were certainly people who were in prison for 10 days. I think they were tested for 10 days. But I, I tend to think that there's something going on here that is a contrast because we've already been addressed by the one who is the first and the last, the one who always has been and the one who always will be. How long is 10 days compared to that? Not very long. And I think that's what he's saying. I, I think he's saying, don't be afraid. You, you're going to go through the struggle. You are. And it, it is going to be painful and it is going to be crushing, all right? The, the, the foreclosure, that's never easy. 
The divorce, you wish you never had to experience that. The diagnosis, you, you are still trying to get your head around all that. It is painful, it can be crushing, but it is temporary. This is not forever. He's saying, I'm forever, beginning and end, first and the last, but, but some of this, it, it, 10 days you're going to go through. In other words, there is a time period to this. Second Corinthians says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So one more time, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. You ready? Be faithful. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. Even to the point of death. That's what these people are facing. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. What does that mean? Well, what Jesus just did is he just gave an Olympic image to an Olympic town. Because Smyrna is an Olympic city. Back in the day, they would rotate where the Olympics were, and about every five years, it landed in Smyrna. They knew what it meant to see people train, like hours and hours and hours of every day, the discipline that would be involved. They, they would represent their city for what? Well, they wanted to cross that line first in order to one day stand on the podium where a crown would be placed on their head. And you're like, that better be a good crown, right? No, it was leaves. Seriously, it was leaves. It was either olive leaves or or, or um, sometimes, it, this is worse, celery leaves. Like, really? That's the crown? That's the crown. And they would weave it together, and they would put it on their head. Some of you can remember, because you're as old as me, um, Michael Phelps, um, remarkable swimmer. I mean, won more gold medals than we can count. And uh, this is at Ath in Athens in 2004. And when they had the Olympics in Athens in 2004, they not only put a gold medal around their neck, but they put the actual wreath, you know, made of the olive leaves or the celery leaves on their head to remember the history of the Olympics and this is the crown of victory that would be worn. So in other words, we got one more zoom out that needs to happen. We got one more wide angle effect that needs to go happen here. We've had the view of a, of a bigger family. There's a family across the world, man, and, and they, 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 they experience a crushing, and, and together we are standing in our faith. We are not on our own. And we broaden it to, to a cross. And, and Jesus, who, who is with us in, in the, the, the middle of it all, and, and the riches that we will always, we will always have what we need. And then he says, there's one more bigger picture. It's called heaven. Verse 11. Who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. You're like, I, I didn't hear the word heaven in there at all. What, what is the second death? That doesn't sound like heaven. No, it's not. It's the opposite. You see, in the Bible, it talks about that there are two births and there are two deaths. Okay? There is a physical birth. And there's a spiritual birth. There is a physical death, and there is a spiritual death. So there's two births, and there's two deaths. So we, we get it. We, we are born physically. Our mom gives birth to us. It is a physical birth. Everybody, that's how, we, that's how we come into this world. But the Bible also says that there is a spiritual birth. And it is what I've kind of been talking about through, through this, this talk, where it's the moment when, when I turn to Jesus Believing that he really is who he says he is. He, he really did die for me. But then on the third day, he, he arose. And when my heart turns to him and in faith, I, I, I say, Jesus, I need you. And by his grace, he forgives my sin. He, he comes to live with me. He takes over my life entrusted to him. The Bible says there is a miracle that happens inside of me. His spirit comes to live within me. It is a new birth, brand new start. Old Jeff, forgiven. And I am raised to new life in him. The Bible is clear that if, if you are only born once, though, then you're going to die twice. If you never put your trust in Jesus, then there's going to be the day that for all of us, we, we run out of time here. Our, our days are, are done. We take our last breath and we physically die. But the Bible says there is a second death. It is a spiritual death. It is to be separated from forever from the Jesus that we were made to be with. But when we reject him, we are separated. If you're only born once, just physically but never spiritually, you will die twice. Not just a physical death but spiritually in terms of being separated forever from the one that you were made for. But if you are born twice, then you will only die once. Yes, there will be a physical death. Unless Jesus returns, that's what it's going to be for all of us. But if you have put your trust in Jesus, born twice, then when you take your last breath in this life, your next step is on to a podium. A finish line of a life of faith in Jesus. And there, as you bow your head before him, I'm convinced you are going to feel the arms of the God who made you to be held by him. It will be the biggest hug you will ever experience in your life and words that are heard, well done. 
and you will receive an honor reserved for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and have pushed through the crushing, they have pushed through the pressure, they have pushed through the pain. It will be the victor's crown of eternal life. And I'm just saying, can you see it? Can you at least zoom out enough to see? This is the finish line. You got a big family who's fighting with you, so come on, keep on fighting. There are people all over the world today who are standing true in their faith. You got a Jesus who is risen, he is with us here, he is with you in every moment, and you got heaven that's coming. I am not saying that physical pain is not real. I'm not saying that abandonment does not hurt. I'm not saying that financial shortage or grief or whatever struggle, it is all real. But you get to be, if you so choose, a part of a story where the crushing pain and the sorrow and the death are swallowed up in life. And the message is, don't fear, be faithful. Don't fear, be faithful. Don't fear, be faithful. God, I can't help but believe that there are some folks in this room. There are some folks hearing my voice. God, we needed the reminding today. Some who are being crushed. Some who feel the press, they feel the weight. And today we need We need a wide-angle view. We need to be reminded of the truth. God, I'm asking today that you would give us eyes that can see. God, some of us would be encouraged today to, to be reminded of our family across this globe. God, we pray for them today. We pray for those who are standing firm in their faith, and it costs them everything. God, would you continue, God, to encourage them today. May they even know that, that we, their family, their church, God, we, we battle for them often. God, may we be reminded today of a cross that changed everything for us. A cross where we know you understand pressure, you understand the crushing, and you are with us. And God, give us eyes that can see what is one day, a place that you prepare. God, today may hearts be encouraged. May faith be strengthened. God, maybe there are people here today who need to put their trust in you for the very first time. God, give them faith to run to you. It is in your great name that we ask and we celebrate. I want you to just start to take in what you're about to hear. And we're going to be over here on the side. You need prayer today. We would be honored to pray for you, to encourage you in any way that we can. Let's meet with him. Jesus is here. Listen to what, listen to these words. Let's, let's celebrate. Let your faith be strengthened. Don't fear. Be faithful.